Hi, I'm Michelle Ward. As a mom, I've looked my children in the eyes with love and hoped I can lead them toward a bright, wonderful future. But as a neurocriminologist who's been studying violent crime for the last 20 years, I've also quietly hoped that at the very least, I'm not raising a future serial killer. And if you can relate to that taboo thought, congratulations, you've just found your new favorite podcast. This is How Not to Raise a Serial Killer. Here to unpack all of that with me today is one of my very best friends, Allie. Allie and I have been friends since sixth grade, sixth grade, and we lived together on and off for seven years as roommates, and Allie is an avid true crime fan, so she makes the perfect person to join me today. Okay, Allie, this is a safe space. Have you ever worried that one of the boys, one of your sons is a killer, going to be a future killer? You know, sometimes it crosses my mind. Sometimes when I'm... After a heated moment and I hear, you know, the sassiness come out of one of the boys, I'm like, where is this going? Is he going to be a good boy? Is he going to grow up to be a good human? And it's hard because it's like, what do you do? You're going to call your pediatrician and be like, um, he gets really mad sometimes. Like, it's just not a lot of places we could uh, take that information, no, I right? I don't want to tell anybody. Do you know what we're talking about today specifically? I don't. You don't. And that, I did that on purpose. All right. We're going to talk about this violent murderer named Levi King. Does that ring a bell for you? Somewhat. Tell me more. Well, you're going to find out a lot more, but you it might ring a bell for you because I actually interviewed him myself, and I probably told you about it, or you watched it on my show. Um, I did it for ID for The Mind of a Murderer, and talking to him was so terrifying because he was, like, cute, normal, like, you would never in a million years know that this guy had done what he had done. Um and I'd been told by a producer on a different show who had talked to him that, like, it wouldn't hurt if I was a little flirty, which obviously goes against all, like, my professional ethics. But I need him to tell me things he hasn't told other people. Otherwise, how, I don't have a show. And if you want to understand a murderer, you got to get him talking because it's not just what they say. It's how they say it because they're obviously talented liars. So you want them to trust you. But it was so sickening. Like, hey, it's so embarrassing, too, because in the episode, I'm like coquettish and giggling like a little girl. And, and I was also really nervous. But it was uh, you can see that when you look at it in my face that I was like, ah, especially since you know me. I remember watching some of those and being so nervous for you. <laughs> well, he ended up being behind glass, which is a story in and of itself. And I'll tell you about that when we get deeper into it. But before I get carried away, let's start with the most heinous crimes of Levi King and the ruthless murders that put him in prison for the rest of his life and led him to nearly getting the death penalty. It's September 2005. Levi is 23 years old and he's forced to leave his father's house in Pineville, Missouri. He had been there for about a week after violating his parole terms and fleeing the halfway house he'd been assigned to in St. Louis. And there's a story about that. So after he waits for his father to leave in the morning, Levi grabbed a bunch of his dad's guns without him knowing. And this began a tragic killing spree that would soon leave five innocent victims who Levi either didn't know or hardly knew. So it was, it was, it was very random and it was particularly tragic and we'll get to that. But this was not the plan all along. Levi had stolen the guns because he was going to sell them because he had no money. He'd just gotten out of this halfway house for a different crime. And he's like, okay, these guns are worth something. So he took them. And he's like walking down the street with a bag full of guns in rural, rural, rural Missouri. That word's the worst. 
rural. Anyway, he's walking down the back roads with like a backpack full of guns in Missouri, like a really not very well populated area of Missouri, since I can't say rural. And um, he says to me that at that moment, a lot of the rejection from his childhood starts bubbling back up again. I don't know if I believed it, but this is what he says happened and what led to what happens next. Um, after wandering for a few miles and feeling like stressed and confused about where to go and what to do, and he knows he's screwed legally because he literally just, I mean, he's supposed to be at the halfway house. He got released from prison. He's in the custody of the halfway house. He's out doing work and he bails. So he knows he's busted. And um, he's just confused and he's thinking these things as he comes up the home of this 70-year-old local guy. It's a business owner in his town. Levi does not know him, but he recognizes him from just being around the town. It's this the seven-year-old named Orly McCool. And just at that exact moment, just coincidentally, Orly and his 47-year-old daughter-in-law, Don McCool, are leaving the house. And they're heading to the grocery store in one car. But Levi doesn't know where they're going. He sees that there's a second vehicle. So he's like, okay, you know what? I'm going to break into this house, steal some stuff, and steal that car, which is obviously going to be much easier for him to get around, but also more stuff to sell. And it's harder to sell guns. And he thinks he's being logical. But as he's rummaging through everything, Orly and Dawn surprise him by returning home super quickly. And so he hides in the closet. And now he's like, oh, my God, you know, I've already broken, violated my parole. Now I'm in a closet. And he said that several things went through his mind and he was trapped in the house. And he starts talking about how up until that moment, he was, you know, angry for everything happened to him. He was dejected um, about how he had nowhere to go legally, felt like a trapped animal. But it wasn't the McCools who trapped him. He trapped himself. And in our interview, he said that the crime he was about to, to commit was just something he acted on, which to me, it's like, okay, I mean. Like just impulse? Yeah, just like, it's a Wednesday. I'm going to kill someone. <laughs> um, so he gave Orly no time to react. He busts out of the closet. He raises his 9mm gun and shot him dead. And then Levi's like, okay, I have to kill Dawn, his daughter-in-law. She'd just seen her father-in-law be murdered. So he, he shot her, but he could tell he hadn't killed her. And so he just poof, rapid shots, boom, 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 just to make sure she's dead. So already it's not like I'm shooting you and I'm running away. I'm like... I'm making sure you're dead. So at this point in my interview, he confessed to me that, and this is important later, the minute he committed those murders, he felt more relief than he had ever felt in his life. Whew. So a normal person, right? It's not relief. It's fear. What right. have I done? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. And he went on to say that the killing made him feel almost content. So he says, all the worries that I felt after I left my father's house simply vanished. I entered a euphoric state. So you and I have talked about this a lot. We'll get into it. But that high, that rush that he's describing is critically important when we talk about how not to raise a serial killer. Because it's something you can see very early on and there's treatment for it. So we'll dive into that in a bit. But let's get back to the crime. At this point, he took off in Orly's truck, and he just kept driving until the rush and mental calm that had occurred to him after his first killings began to leave him. And I asked him about that. I said, were you like, I just killed two people? And he said, no, I was just, you know, driving. I was just driving, enjoying the rush. And I was like, oh, okay. I mean, he was talking to me like he'd just, you know, gone skydiving, and it was really exciting for him. So... He drove 400 miles from Missouri to the Texas Panhandle, and soon he was feeling the need to have that euphoria again, like a drug, like that he's coming off the euphoria and he wants to bump it back up. So as it dawned on him that he would need to feel it again, he sees this dark farmhouse in the outskirts of Pampa, Texas. And, it, and I've seen this area. I went there. It's 
it, there's nothing there. It's just like farmhouse, then miles and miles and miles, and then another farmhouse. It's not a lot going on. It was less than 24 hours since Levi had killed his first two victims that he approaches the home of Michelle and Brian Conrad, and in it are also her two kids from a previous marriage, 14-year-old Zach and 10-year-old Robin, plus Michelle's six months pregnant with another child at the time. I know. And the entire family's asleep. So he goes to a side door of the Conrad house. He kicks it open. He flips on the lights. Michelle, like, you know, when you're pregnant, you don't sleep at all. She's the first one. She pops up and he blows her away. Uh, Then obviously her husband wakes up. So he kills him as well. Then he flipped off the light and stomped through the rest of the house just to make sure he left nobody alive. And that's when 10-year-old Robin Doan, the daughter, she had awoken to the sound of the gunshots, and she's, like, cowering by the by the door in her bed, and he opens the door. And I know, the, I know how this transpired. She jumps, like, literally leaps back into her bed, and he fires a, a shot at her. Like a little girl. She's 10. Yeah. So then Levi enters Zach's room. He's the 14-year-old, and he's asleep. And Zach doesn't wake up. Zach's not awake, and he, Levi blows him away. After all of this killing was through, Levi admitted to me that he did not feel that same rush the second time around. But it still was a sense of relief and contentment, just not as much as the first, which reminds me of people who do like heroin. You never, you're always chasing the dragon. You never get that high again. Right. But what do you do? You still keep trying. Right. Because so, you're chasing the high. Oh, my God. He was... Yeah, he's a spree killer at this point, but this is a serial killer. And this in the was making. within 24 hours 24 after? 24 hours. Yeah. Within 24 hours. Wow. He even started rifling through the family's photos and mail. And, and I was like, why are you going through their stuff, weirdo? Like, you already blew them away. Yeah. And he was trying to feel something because he a felt connection. nothing. Connection. Who were they to kind of up the right. excitement, the feeling of it? Nothing. He just wanted to feel something. So, yeah, he's getting something out of it, but it wasn't as much. So he hops back into Orly's truck, the original guy. He shot and stole, and he heads for the Mexican border. And he thought he had killed everybody in the house. But 10-year-old Robin was still alive. In fact, he missed her. He didn't hit her at all. She's not even in Shot at the bed didn't hit her at all. Didn't hit her. She played dead for two hours, knowing he had shot everybody in the house because she heard it. How, and she was terrified he'd come back, obviously. So can you imagine our 10-year-olds, like, shivering in a bed for two hours? She finally, when, like, after the sun comes up, goes outside and calls 911. She was smart enough to leave the house. And she told, and I've heard this recording, I have chills right now. She told the operator, she said a lot of things about, like, I don't know if my mom's dead. And all I want right now is my blanket and my pillow. I know. It's so heartbreaking. Robin was then rescued by the police, and I want to add something to this. The, we interviewed the policeman, and he said when he got there and he was trying to console her, he had a little girl, and he was you know, obviously very upset. And she's like, will you help me do the feeding? And they went out and fed all the farm animals because she knew they needed to be fed. Oh. Her whole family's just been slaughtered. And the little girl went with the officer and fed the pigs and fed, I know, that one really got me. Oh. So she's rescued by the police. She couldn't describe the man who executed her family because she was playing dead and didn't see him. But it gets... It ramps up here because, meanwhile, while this is happening, back in Missouri, Levi's dad called the police because he noticed his guns were missing. And he expressed concern to the police that he was worried his son would hurt someone. But that's not why he was calling the police. He was calling the police because he wanted his guns recovered because he's not the type of person who would care, as we will learn. 
So it's 10 in the morning after Levi's first murders and Levi's first victims, the McCools, were discovered by a relative. The body, they came in and saw the bodies. Police come to the scene and they see Orly dead in a pool of blood and then Dawn with all, you know, multiple gunshots. It looked like she had tried, like she has defensive wounds, like she tried to stop the bullets with her hands. So I'll just let you sit with that image. Um, the police decide it's an execution. The report from Levi's dad made it into the system right away. So when the police enter these bodies, Levi's name literally pops up. So this is this is going quickly. And they put an all-points bulletin out for Levi. They f- quickly fingered him as the prime suspect, and Border Patrol agents caught him at the Mexican border. That's insane. Like, how— That's incredible. How did that happen so yeah. fast? Yeah, yeah. Right? Within, like— Just like a day. Yeah, within a day. It was super quick. It doesn't always happen that way. So this is good because I know for a fact—okay, I can't know anything for a fact— I really, really, really believe he was just going to continue. And, I and, and keep going. Keep going. Because he needs that rush, right? Yeah. All right. Levi's charged with the McCool killings in Missouri, but police in Texas didn't have any leads for the murders for the Conrad family, and they're not putting that together. So their leads, their local leads are all dead ends. But unexpectedly, it would be Levi himself who helped them solve the crime. He's in jail awaiting trial for the McCool killings, and he— said a police to a policeman, you know there's four more victims, right? But he didn't give the police any more details. That says a lot about the guy. He doesn't like kind of doesn't want to get caught, but he also wants credit. And we see that a lot with killers. Sometimes they even make up people they haven't killed just because they want the uh attention. Is it like a just Yeah. The attention me. and the Yeah. Catch and, me I if mean, you can. I did a podcast comparing serial killers and one of the, the who killed at the same time in the same place and they were there's audio recording of two serial killers arguing about which one of them had killed more. It's a competition. An internet search for unsolved crimes in surrounding states lead police to the Conrad farmhouse, and quickly they do a DNA connection, and they realize Levi committed both the McCool killings in Missouri and the Conrad killings in Texas. He's charged with all of the murders in both states. Um, he pleaded guilty to the killings of Orly and Don McCool just to avoid trial in Missouri. But in Texas, he had to be tried in both places because he killed in both different states. He faced the death penalty in Texas. Now, we'll learn this in, as these podcasts go on. But Texas loves the death penalty. And I've been there over and over and over again to interview people. And it's it's a total, totally different way they view it down there. Um but he doesn't know at this point if he's going to get death penalty or life in prison. And he says now, he said to me, oh, I appreciate my life now, which I don't quite understand. He said, didn't know if it would be – we didn't know what he was going to get, and he didn't know which one he wanted because, you know, the, the idea of spending the rest of your life in jail is not pleasant. But now he's he's happy that he didn't have it because after – or that he wasn't sentenced to death because after eight hours of deliberation, it was just one lone juror who refused to give Levi the death penalty. Oh, wow. On October 7th, 2009, Levi was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. All right, Allie. How could this have happened? What, what are we, what we going to do next? Allie lived with me through my entire graduate school process. So poor Allie sat across from me talking about this stuff many, many times. So she knows what I'm going to do. I mean, well, first, I have so many questions. Like, he, what was, he felt rejection, you said, mm-hmm. as a, growing up. Yeah. And, and then he, you know, was in a halfway house and he, you know, let, you know, bailed on his parole or all that, yeah. all that. What, what happened to him? That, what do you say happened to him growing up that caused him to feel so much like, 
I don't know, anger, whatever happened, what, what got him to that place? So that's exactly where we're going. We're going to his childhood. How could this have happened? And I feel like the questions I had, I had a lot of questions just when I heard about the crime, but I had a lot more after I got to know him. And so much of how a criminal like he operates is revealed in not just the crime, but the words of the criminal. And there's another layer because you can't take them at face value. Obviously, they're lying for their own benefit. I mean, they're not usually the most ethical people. So I do. I have had some murderers who are actually relatively ethical people and were in the bad situation. This is not Levi. In Levi's case, an examination of his childhood almost makes it seem like he was absolutely groomed to become a serial killer. Um, his dad... His dad had a lot of traits of a serial killer himself. Um, I was and, wondering about his dad. Yeah, the dad was, was bad news. And he was grooming him. Levi was his chosen one in a lot of ways. And he acknowledged, yes, there was like an in, inordinate amount of physical abuse in the house, but it was the mental abuse that he really focuses on. And I would say what he went through was probably akin to kind of mental torture, like warfare. It really, it was warfare, like a mental warfare. So Levi's one of seven kids and he grew up in a house that in Pineville and it's it's not I mean it's it's a relatively impoverished community to begin with but he in particular over a third of his life his house had no insulation, no heat, I think no running water, rarely was there like food. I mean it was they were living a very poor existence and um his dad hardly worked which is why there was no electricity or food and was doing drugs and 12 years old, he started encouraging, or if not forcing, Levi to do drugs with him. And so we see how this is going. He uh, started with just weed, as if that's not a big deal, and drinking, but then it moves on to Xanax, Valium, and Oxys. On top of that, so you're imagining this house, right? Like there's no running water, there's no insulation, it's flipping cold in Missouri, no heat. You're getting high with your dad because it's the only time he's really nice to you. It's the only relationship Levi really remembered having with his dad. And it's also an arsenal in there. It's guns, swords, knives. It's, I mean, it's almost like you, if you took a recipe of how to make a criminal, you only need a few ingredients, but there were all of the ingredients in Is this house. Is he the oldest? I can't recall. I don't have the answer, but he talks a lot about his younger siblings. So he's one of the older kids. But what? why did you ask that? Like, what were you thinking about? Well, I just, in my mind, I, I think about my, my own two kids, and I have an older son and a younger son. So I always wonder, you know, just in thinking and listening to you, where, you know, where Levi stood in the... Child placement. Yeah. Well, and you bring up a good point because it's like, okay, you, obviously he's been through the trauma longer than the younger ones, but there was no older sibling to protect him when he was little. Or if there were, there was only one, whereas I bet... I bet these older siblings serve as a bit of a buffer for the younger ones. I hadn't thought of that, and I think it might explain a few things that we see coming up. So it's a really good question. So as I said, it's a drug house. It's, you know, none of the basic physical needs are taken care of. And there's guns and knives and stuff everywhere. And, and okay, so those guns and knives aren't there necessarily to kill people. This, these are avid hunters. And Levi's dad would take all the kids out um, to go target shooting. But m Levi got a lot of that. But the problem was the targets weren't always, you know, beer cans. Sometimes it was helpless animals and pets, like not in a hunting fashion, just a target something and kill it. I mean, pets. Yeah, it's bad because, I mean, here's an example. Here's probably the most egregious example. The family dog had a litter of puppies. 
And his dad puts the puppies in the box and says, Levi, come with me. Just Levi. Levi, come with me. Takes Levi and the pu- box of puppies into the woods and then shoots the box till there's nothing left. Oh. In front of his small child. I mean, that explains a lot yeah. already. Right? Yeah. That's that's just disturbing. Right. Like, okay, so like they're incredibly poor. So maybe they can't handle more pets to feed. But a normal parent is going to take them to an animal shelter. Or if he has to put them down, he's not going to bring his kid with them. Like, it's you can see just the level of right. kind of sadistic parenting that Levi endured. By the way, it's no excuse. No. Because six other siblings in that house did not become murderers. And we're going to talk about why that might be. So it's really easy to be like, oh, he had such a bad upbringing. And he did. And all of that's there. And all of it influences. But I don't want to let him totally off the hook. Because if, if it only, if it was just bad upbringings and everybody from a bad family, anybody, you know, who experienced trauma would become criminals. It's more complicated. There's something about Levi himself and we can talk about that. This inclination to kill low-hanging fruit that his dad has was obviously passed on to Levi because it's really easy to kill a box full of puppies. Like it's really easy to go kill a pet because they trust you. They come to you. And Levi's killing low-hanging fruit too. Every one of Levi's victims was either older or older sleeping or a child right like and i talked to him about that i'm like it's pretty easy to kill those yeah, people they're defenseless they're like, defenseless they're sleeping yeah yeah it makes me also wonder about his father and mm-hmm. his upbringing you know oh. and how did that trickle down where were you when i was interviewing him i actually did not ask him that question and the reason i didn't is because this dad is so bad that i felt like i had enough but i wonder what his upbringing looked like or or, you know, what his pedigree looked like with our criminals all along? It's a great question. I didn't ask it. Um, another thing that he did that really impacted Levi is he took the family dog. It was, Levi brought the dog home. And he's like, Levi, come here. And he chained the dog to a tree. He shot the dog. And then Levi thought he was, he was messing with the dog. And Levi was obviously upset because he brought this dog home. I mean, I say he was upset. I'm projecting. I think I would be upset. I think his dad thought he might be upset. Or maybe he was testing him to see if he would be upset. And he was messing with the dog. Levi thought he was taking the chain off the dog. Instead, he walks up to Levi and smears the blood on Levi's face. And Levi interpreted. He told me, I think he did that to tell me that this is on me. I've got this guy, this dog's blood on me like it was my fault because I brought the dog home. Wow. Yeah. Clearly yeah. not taking the parenting classes that you take. No. Right? <laughs> no. <laughs> Not typical tween. Yeah. I mean, really, this ep- whole episode is how not, like, th- this is this is exactly the opposite of what you should do, mom, dad. So I had to know. You know me. I have to figure out if somebody has emotions. Like, because are you a psychopath? Or how do you feel when this stuff happens? And I asked him. And he said initially he was upset um, about his dad killing the pets. But it didn't last long. He went from, oh, my God, this, you know. To whatever it means to Levi to be upset, which is probably not the same as what it means to everybody else, but whatever his level of discontent with these killings of the pets flipped, then he started doing it. How interesting. Mm -hmm. And disturbing. Very disturbing. So Levi's acting out in a lot of ways at this point, and he starts killing animals and, you know. How old is he at this point? So that's where I'm confused. I think he's seven or eight but I saw somewhere that he started a fire in his sister's room at age four, but I couldn't get far with that. So I don't think it was that big of a deal. But still, you know, when children start killing animals and starting fires, it's something to be noted, everyone. 
Like, it's a thing. And animal violence, as we know, everyone who knows anything about true crime now knows that animal violence, especially a pet, is the one of the best predictors of future human or future violence against humans. It's not just future violence against animals. It, it's actually directly related to crimes against humans. And that's obviously a giant red flag. And Levi, Levi watched his dad, the patriarch, normalize killing. And that's something that would happen in the home. Usually when I see a killer ramp up in animal cruelty, they kill things that are kind of easier to kill at first and a less emotional kill, like a fish. And then maybe it's a squirrel and they ramp up. He goes straight to pets, his own pets. And that's a whole different level of disturbed thinking. And that, I mean, obviously the, everyone should be called at this point. But I feel like it's also the father grooming him or, or yeah. teaching him those. And then it beca- he becomes, you know. Yeah. You know, part of that. That's part of it. Well, and he also, you know, I think some some people would argue he didn't know the difference. He thought that was right. I would argue he's enjoying it. Yeah. You know, because there's a bunch of other kids in the house and they're not doing it. Right. So there's something a little different about this guy. And that's that's why this a study of somebody like him is good, because you really can see, of course, trauma. Everyone knows how related trauma is to violence. You know, you can become an alcoholic, you can become a cutter, you can become a criminal yourself. Everybody knows. That's the first step in not raising a serial killer is please don't let them go through trauma. And please don't be the cause of the trauma, right? Okay, so he says he he enjoyed doing it. He once skipped school and used a shotgun to fire four rounds into his little brother's cat. So mean. And his brother's probably traumatized. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, though, his brother doesn't become a criminal. So he... He obliterates this cat, and he's smiling when he tells me it was really funny. Parts of all that was left of this cat were parts of his head, a strip of hide, and its tail. So I'm looking at him, and you can see he's a little like smirking. And I'm like, "What did that make you feel, Levi?" And he said, "I don't know. I thought it was a little funny that that's all that was left. This is a loved pet, loved by somebody yeah. Levi should love." Right. Psychoanalysis calls this a bunch of things like repetition, compulsion. You follow what you see. um, You repeat traumatic experiences as a way to gain control over them. Um, Other people think it might be modeling. There could be an element of that in both of this, but I think think he inherited this too. And I think that this is like more of a biosocial phenomenon. And this you and I have talked about a million times, this combination of nature and nurture and how explosive it is, this dual inheritance. It's not, I inherited genes that predispose me to violence, because you can do that, but never be triggered. Right. Or I'm, I, I, don't, I don't have the genes to predispose me to violence, but I'm in this really horrible upbringing. But if you got both, it's explosive. Yeah, right. It's explosive, it's not even additive. It's, it becomes a whole different trajectory that's, you know, you're off to the races. to killers for a living, and I'm always trying to get them to tell me their stories, but I actually really like pleasant family stories, too, and I think we could probably all do a better job of asking our relatives about the chapters in their lives that we're not really familiar with. I thought I knew my aunt better than almost anyone, but one day we're chatting, and I heard a story I'd never heard before, and that got me wondering, how many other stories don't I know? And that's why I got my aunt StoryWorth. 
StoryWorth is an online service, and it helps you and your loved ones connect through sharing stories and memories, and then they preserve them for years to come. Every week, StoryWorth emails your mom, or in my case, my aunt, a thought-provoking question of your choice from a vast pool of options. Each unique prompt asks a question that you probably have never thought to ask before, like, what was your most embarrassing childhood memory? Or if you could do it all over again, what would you do differently? Or why did you kill those seven people? Now, wait, wrong interview. My family members don't kill. Anyway, I have really, really enjoyed reading my aunt's responses to these questions, and I've discovered stories and memories I've never heard about, and also learned new things about stories I thought I knew really well. For example, my aunt just told me about what it was like for her, my mom, and my uncle to leave Denmark and move to America. My mom died four years ago. I can't ask her these questions, and I so wish I'd had story worth back then. But now my aunt can help me fill in a lot of these blanks. After one year, StoryWorth compiles all of those questions and stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book for the whole family to share for generations. It's really so important to know about your family history, and I love that my kids will also have access to this. Give all the moms in your life a meaningful gift you'll both cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, for a limited time, you'll save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash hownot. That's S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash how not to save $10 on your first purchase. Again, that's storyworth.com slash how not. As a teen, Levi's violent tendencies escalated into real criminal behaviors. He moves beyond just killing animals. He committed his first major theft, Grand Theft Auto at 16. No. 13. And then he dropped out of school and he was diagnosed as bipolar depression with psychosis. And that's a little complicated because he's doing so many drugs at this point. You look like you have psychosis when you're addicted to drugs in many cases. So I'm not sure that that's a proper diagnosis. Um, But even if it were, I don't think he stays medicated for it. Right. You know, who's going to be there to give him his meds? Who's going to go to the pharmacy? Right. Mom, dad, nope. If, if there was any improvement during those days, they didn't last long. In his last stint, the one we talked about where he violates parole, he had been he'd committed a big crime. He robbed and then burned down the house down the street. So he gets 14 years. He's sentenced 14 years in prison, but he's out in 17 months. Yeah, and he's sent to a halfway house where he's being, that's his parole situation. And... We asked the law enforcement officers why this happened, and they said, well, it's a first-time offender. You know, th- this this can happen, but this this starts this trajectory. So he's not only in the halfway house. He has a work release program. You know, see people picking up trash on the side of the highways, and they'll right. wearing orange. Sometimes community that's service. community service. That, that can happen. He picked up his last paycheck and bolted. He did just— Hopped on a bus back to his mom and dad. He went to his dad's house. So his parents are divorced at this point, and neither of them want him to come home. He's 17. Yeah, 17. So he's a a minor Mm -hmm. still. Mm -hmm. And he told me that upset him. That that nobody wanted him, him, the rejection. Mm -hmm. But would you want that guy in your house? I feel like they... You know, if if there were any normal parenting, you wouldn't necessarily want that child there with your younger kids. But I don't think it's that. I think they just don't want to bother with him. Right. He's trouble. But I'm surprised the dad didn't take him in. Right. Being that he had selected him, he chose mm-hmm. him early on. 
his mini-me. When he talks about it, he does, like I said, he feels wronged. Neither of them wanted to take care of me and my mental issues I was facing. Coming home from the mental hospital, me wanting to go to my mom's, my mom wanted me to go with my dad, neither of them wanting me. He's actually saying this to me, and that it, he said it was upsetting. Um, what upsets me is that he's in institutionalized care. He's already a criminal. Why are the people in charge? I mean, he's diagnosed with psychosis. What about child services? Why are they not involved? Like, it's not just mom and dad at this point. He has a criminal record. And he's being he's in mental institutions, and he's being diagnosed with pretty serious illnesses. Right. How to get released? Right. And why is there no follow up? Where where are social services at this point? That's another way that we cannot raise serial killers. Is when you have a child, when there's a child in front of you, and your job is part of Child Protective Services, or you're treating this child in a mental institute, it the onus does begin to fall on you as well to follow through. Right. And we see this a lot in these crime in these crime podcasts that there's so many places where the criminal fell through the cracks right. to arrive where they arrive. Um, okay, so you're hearing this, and do you feel any, like, empathy for the guy? Like, what does it elicit from you? Um. I do only in in some respects, and mm-hmm. others, like you were saying, I feel like he inherited maybe some of the traits that his dad mm-hmm. has, and then he was his dad saw that selected him, you know, groomed him. But I do feel badly. His upbringing was mm-hmm. not a good situation. Um, the, the environment was certainly not a good situation. Feeling rejection from his parents. Yeah, I mean, like you just said, it was like this combination, this explosive combination. It's a double whammy. Totally, he's getting it from everywhere. Totally. And and I felt some empathy for him, too. It's hard when you think of the torturing and the killing of animals. And right. Then you then you kind of feel, yeah, you don't feel the empathy. Right. But then you kind of do, looking at the whole picture, I mean, this kid was set up, you know, like the, I don't know, the environment, like you were saying, the environment and then his, his um, you know, biologically. Mm-hmm. And then you combine the two and, and it just... Yeah, it's and it calls into question what's the culpability? How much of this is his fault when you cannot control your biology and your upbringing? Right. Right. You know, so it's it. I find that really complicated. It's like my goal is to teach how we can avoid this, but once you're there, once you're doing it, and you you pay the price for it, it's really frustrating in my position because it's like I want to get this out there. I want everyone to understand that there are ways that we can prevent some of these crimes and not a small part of portion of them, like a big portion of them. And then I'll, you also have to look at these criminals. Like they're not making decisions like you and me. I mean, the guy's, I'm, I'm quite content with him being in prison for the rest of his life. For sure. Quite for what he's done. We don't really Absolutely. need someone like that floating around. Right. But it does call into question the level of culpability when you can't, we are not all born equal. Right. And that's just the facts. And we must also remember that None of his siblings became murderers. In fact, they're not even criminal. Whether we like it or not, genes play a part of this. And it would be nice if all the children had clean slates at birth. It's not. And we also know living in a dysfunctional, abusive home with a ton of trauma is horrible and can lead to future violence. And as we said, this guy inherited 50% of his dad's genes. Now, so did his siblings. But remember, genes recombine. You only share, you share 50% of your genes with your mom, 50 with your dad, and you share 50% with your siblings. So they all recombine. Otherwise, if they didn't, each one of our children would just be clones of their sis- brothers and sisters, right. and they're not. So it could be that he inherited a particular combination of genes that made him a little bit more like his dad in these areas. So That makes sense. It's usually a constellation of genes that 
create a personality pattern, especially in, I did this in my dissertation, I, I mathematically measured it, and it's a, like a constellation of genes that lead to psychopathy. And I think that's what we see here, is that he he has those features, and so does his dad, and they're genetically related, but doesn't mean all the kids will get it, but it gets even darker, because the grandchildren might pop up Ooh, like this. Right. Because those genes all recombine again, and those grandchildren right. are going to have 25% of the dad's genes. So right. it doesn't end with one person. And that's an important message to get out there. Like, if you have criminals in your pedigree or your or your husband's pedigree, or just people with addictions or bad behavior, don't have to be criminal or psychopathic. And there's a ton of pro-social psychopaths. Psychopaths are very rarely murderers. Right. And that's something I want to really dive into, but not right now. Um, be mindful of it. And if you see things in your children, there are ways to nudge your kids to become pro-social psychopaths. They do not have to become criminal. And they, they don't even bad, they're not even bad people. I mean, we know some psychopaths and they're good. You want them running your hedge fund. <laughs> <laughs> My point is, it's important to recognize your, the the genes from which your children come. Obviously, it's a lot more complicated with Levi because any one of these risk factors he has could have made him criminal. Any one of them. And he gets all of them. The other siblings may have inherited a different set of genes or, you know, same number of genes, same percentage, but a different combination of them. And that could have been a protective factor. IQ is also a protective factor. Um, but in this case, Levi's IQ is actually quite high. He's he's very bright. It's not one of those, you know, sometimes I'm talking to this criminal and I'm like, I mean, he couldn't talk his way out of a paper bag and you can see how crime is just the easiest way for him to survive, but not Levi. Aren't, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, aren't a lot of serial killers and, and killers, they are smart. They do have a high IQ. Yeah. Right? Well, especially the cold-blooded killers. So you and I have talked about this a lot. There's the hot-blooded killers. Those are the impulsive killers who just kill. They're at a bar. They get upset. And they kill somebody or they kill their wife or they, you know, in the fight. These cold-blooded calculating, the ones who plan it out, yeah, usually very bright. Yeah. Okay. Gets worse. Shocking. No, no. In 2000, his little brother Spencer, he was 12, I believe. No, he's 13. He is shot by a neighbor and killed. A 12-year-old oh. neighbor. Oh. Yeah. This is why we don't let children play with guns, people. Um. I wanted to know what Levi felt about the incident, and he, something very interesting happened. He said, well, it was it was quite terrible. I didn't cry or anything. So he is now—Levi has now learned the words of emotion, but he doesn't know the music of the emotion. And that's a— There's not a connection. There's not a connection. They learn to say they feel bad or remorseful or guilty. They don't feel it. They don't They feel don't know it. what to feel. And I studied juvenile psychopaths because I wanted to capture them, A, before they would committed any crimes that could actually change your biology, because it can— um, but B, before they learn to lie and pretend they care. And Levi's learned to say, like, of course, I know, now I know I should be bummed that my brother died. But as soon as they got home from the funeral, his dad went right to his bedroom and got a gun, dragged all seven siblings, well, now there's only six siblings, out, and all five remaining siblings are crying. The sixth remaining sibling, Levi, is not. He is not crying. So the dad makes each of them hold a gun and shoot and shoot and shoot until they stop crying. <gasps> oh, my God. It's not dad. Levi. My theory is that Levi's dad knew he'd become super desensitized to violence and trauma, which almost seemed like his goal. And he's trying to do this to the others. Levi's father is actually a perfect example of how to raise a serial killer. Oh, yeah. 
there's a hundred things going through my head and I can I continuously like try to relate to how I'm raising my kids at home and you know reactions I have to certain things and how my kids react to me and we of course you know we want to provide a super safe and nurturing home and we and and I I do I do strive to do that you do do it and I do do it you do do it I'm there um, a lot but at the same time we lose our cool you know we get frustrated I have tweens they don't listen and when I lose my cool and then I see my kids reactions and they escalate and then it's just it it's not productive but at the same time I wonder like you know when they get to that hot that point where they're just they've lost their cool mm-hmm. that it makes me wonder like right. are these is this something that I should be worried about you know, in their future. And I think that's the whole point of this, because there is a level of normative lack of lack of control on a child's part. Their their brains are immature. Their prefrontal cortexes are very immature. They don't have the same level of control. But when you see a difference in how your two kids react, then it's kind of like, wait a minute, is this one is yeah. this one different? Is this one going down the wrong path? Right. How much of this is normative and how much of this is something I need to pay attention to? And how much of it is, am I causing by yelling at right. them? Right. That's exactly that. I, I then get the mom guilt. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, am I creating something right. here? Right. For sure. I have one kid who literally has never elicited me to even raise my voice. I mean, got it. I mean, never mind. He would never have been spanked. He literally doesn't do anything that to make him uh, deserve real punishment. I mean, he gets in, like, stop doing sure. that. He gets, his behavior gets corrected. But he's never really needed to be punished. He's never been sent to his room. He's never had his iPad taken away. <laughs> Unlike his sister. <laughs> but then I'm like, wait a minute. Is he the silent type? Is it all going on just in his head? Right. You do that as a parent. I do. I, like, I look at everything. I look at how... Each kid reacts differently, mm-hmm. completely. Um, one of them gets, you know, feels gets starts crying and feels guilty, and I'm sorry, mommy. And the other one is just starts, you know, getting sassy and just like, I want to get out of this house, and mm-hmm. you know, is a teenager before he's really a teenager. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I have the same combination, and I have even though I know all the stuff, like, or I'm always looking up stuff. I'm right. always wrong. This is the thing. Like I sit in this chair and I'm like, let's talk about how not to. Talk. I'm always looking stuff up, and I'm always doing things wrong. I'm always, I find myself shaming my kids. I'm like, you know better, but we're humans. I know. And we're going to mess this up. We are. But if we can avoid killers, then we're winning. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Okay, so I want to bring it back to Levi because I think you might have some questions about this too. And I think it's interesting. So in 2003, Levi's 21. And his criminal actions catch up with him finally. He gets caught for something big. He broke into a nearby house, robbed it, and then burned it to the ground. Mm. Yeah, and and by then the cops know his name, like, he, oh, yeah. and it's like it's a it's a house in your neighborhood. I'm like, come on, he's kind of losing. He's just like spiraling a little bit. Like, you, right? You're smarter than that, Levi. But it, I'm glad it happened. Although it didn't prevent what happened next. But he gets arrested. He goes to jail. Um, he has two charges: burglary and arson, both in the second degree. He's sentenced to 14 years, but let out in 17 months. Um, and he's sent to St. Louis, Missouri to a halfway house. And that's where he's going to be. That's how he's going to serve out his parole. And I talked to one of the police officers and like, mm, it really was technically a first time offense. He had done some other stuff, but it wasn't, it was a violent, this is considered a violent, like like grand theft auto is not violent. So this is the first time violent offense. And I'm like, but that's a 14 years to 17 months. Yeah. 
And, you know, as we talked, what we talked about earlier about where were the, where are the child services? Like once this person has been diagnosed with severe mental illness, been institutionalized several times, has now committed a major crime and then is sent to a halfway house. It's not just his parents dropping the ball and they've dropped that. Yeah. I mean, his parents dropped a proverbial ball over and over again, but the system did too. Right. And we see a lot of criminals fell through the cracks. And this is the kind of thing. It's like, come on, we all have to do better. All the systems, they, they, they need to do better. And they need to know what... The releasing back out. <laughs> yes. And there's they need to implement these programs where you can actually improve a criminal like Levi. And we're going to get into those. Okay. So he's in this halfway house. He's on a work release program. And he bails. He just takes off after he received his last check. And... Let it be known that the halfway house didn't even alert authorities that he had left. They never did. So, yeah, so broken. So broken. So he buys a ticket from St. Louis back to Pineville. His parents, neither of them want him. They both said, don't come here. He shows up at his dad's house anyway, and he hangs out for about a week with his um, siblings. Like, he wanted to see his his siblings. And I even asked him this in prison. I'm like, well, that wasn't very smart. Don't you think that's where they're going to look for you first? And he looked at me and goes, oh, but did they? I'm like, touche, Levi King. Like He He knew. They didn't go. They never went to his his dad's house. There's no follow-up. So his dad kicks him out. And he was already feeling rejected because his parents didn't want him back. But his dad kicked him out. And he's like, I have nowhere to go. I have nowhere to go. Levi said that his dad cast him out, asked him to leave after they'd been doing oxys for several days together. And he said that the rejection just started bubbling up for him. And it was a pattern that was repeated over the course of his life. But... When I asked if he thought he might kill someone after that, he said no, and that if he were to have killed anybody, he would have wanted to kill his dad. So my question comes mm-hmm. in, where's the mom in all this? Right? Uh, being a mom, but also, you know, you hear a lot of him bringing up his father and his how his father mm-hmm. has taken him groom him, and he's feeling rejection from both parents, right? Right. So where's I asked him mom? that. I asked about his mom, and he, what I got from him was that she just— kind of left the program like she was checked out I think she may have also been a user um, but there's not a lot of talk I think she probably just wasn't as involved as the dad right you know she's not winning any mother of the year awards either well, he's raising the whole all the, the whole, kids the right so she probably did just check out yeah and that's kind of what the impression I got from him is just like his mom was there but not really there right so personally I don't know if the rejection was a trigger um, he says the only reason he didn't kill his dad is because his younger brothers were still living with his dad um I don't know. He goes for low-hanging fruit. I think it would have been too difficult to kill his dad. Right. And he wants to kill. But he doesn't want to get caught. So I think maybe if a perfect opportunity had thrown, like, fallen in his lap to kill his dad, where he would have gotten away, like, on a hunting, and faked a hunting accident or something like that, I think he would have done it. But I think separately, we're listening to the words also of a killer. And he's had a lot of time to think about why he behaves the way he behaves. And he's had a lot of time to learn... That you have leverage if you find a reason for what you did, what you did. Right. And a lot of them, you know, will do that to me. They'll lie. They'll, they'll make up stories. And I'm like, okay, but that's not really how that happened because I had, had to do my research before I came here today. Right. Um, I think it actually has more to do with the high that, that he felt. Versus the rejection. Yeah. And here's why. I think the reason, what I sensed from him, and I said it earlier that this was going to become important, the high. I think... He is what we see in lots and lots of criminals, but it's not discussed enough, chronic under arousal. And you and I have 
talked about that. It's the the nervous system, the fight or flight. People who are under aroused, they have reduced heart rates, reduced skin conductance, they don't sweat, and they basically don't ever feel nervous or excited. So not feeling nervous allows them to commit the crimes. They're not scared. But not feeling excited is a really difficult way to live. Right. So the rest of us have these normal heart rates. That We have normal resting heart rates. We feel comfortable in our own skin. And our physiology corresponds with our environment. So like when we're about to be shocked or listen to hear a loud noise, our heart rate, like we did this. I did this with children in my my study. From We took nine to 10-year-olds and we told them, okay, at the end of this 10, we're gonna, you're going to watch this countdown. And at the end of 10 seconds, you're going to be blasted with noise. The non-psychopathic kids, their heart rate increased, their skin conductance, I put electrodes on their fingers, um, that increased, their respiration changed, their, it, all of the normal responses. And the closer you get to the countdown ending, the more nervous they are. Not the psychopaths. They just they don't they, they don't just... have that anticipatory fear. It's their const so that allows them to do things like commit crime, but it also is an uncomfortable way to live. They're never excited. Nothing gets their heart rates up. So you this is really important. One out of every hundred children have this. Mm. One out of every hundred children are born with this effed up under arousal. It's frightening. Is that great for bomb detonating? Absolutely. Right. But you need to send them in those directions. Free climbing, I don't know, base jumping, bomb detonating, like that, not detonating, bomb, yeah, yeah, you know, hurt locker where you have to go in there and you have to undo the bomb. Uh, Disposal. Dismantle. Thank you. Dismantle. Bomb, diffusing, dismantling, whatever it is. (laughs) That is arousing for people with under arousal. Pro-social, normal activities. And I, I really, really want, if you hear nothing else I ever say to any podcast, if you see this in your child, if you see a sensation seeker, a thrill seeker, somebody who's from an impoverished place like Levi, he's not going to have access to doing something. He's not going to be playing organized sports and getting a rush from that. Crime is going to be the most available way for him for sure, to get that, that rush. Yeah. And after the first killing, he had more relief than he had ever remembered. And that's important. He said he felt content. He talked about the euphoria. He said he finally felt alive. So that was like, to me, I'm like, oh boy, this is an easy one. This is easy. We could have done something about that. So remember, as he's driving, this great feeling of euphoria fades, just like it does with drug addicts. And what do the drug addicts do when their their high starts to fade? They look, look for more drugs. Yeah, they're, right? they're going to chase it. They're going to chase it. Yeah. So he's driving to the Conrad's house in Palma, Texas, and he realizes he needs to kill again. He goes and slays in a family you know, he doesn't know, just to feed his own addiction. And he said to me that he was so sorry that he had to kill the kids. And I look at him and I come back at him. I'm like, you were not sorry. You weren't sorry. He's like, well, actually, I was, Michelle. I was sorry that they had to die. And I think that's really telling. Like, And I said, oh, so Levi King's needs are more important than everybody else. And he said, yep, at that point, they were. Um, to this day, he does not have remorse for those he's killed. And in he, hang, he chooses the low-hanging fruit, as I mentioned. He's not looking for risk or a challenge. He's just looking for the high. Now, killing his dad would have been difficult. He doesn't want that. He just wants the high. And he did not last long as a killer. I think it was, what did we say, it was two days until yeah. he's caught. And obviously, because the, the murders all happen in such short order, it's classified as a spree killing. But this is this has all the trappings of a serial killer in the making. And, yeah, he was going to 
there probably would have been another set of victims within a day. I mean, it was miraculous that they get they were able to catch him at the border within such a short amount of time. Imagine, I can only imagine. What yeah, because the done. high is going to fade again, right? And the high wasn't even as high. So, um, as we discussed earlier, Levi is the one who actually tipped off the police about the additional murders. He said there's four more, and of course, at that point, he thought he had killed Robin, and he hadn't. And the fact that he's partially responsible for getting caught is very much in line with the behavior of. A spree killer who's been who's been ended or a serial future serial killer who's been ended like they know now they want credit they don't right. have he doesn't have the opportunity for more targets right so now he just wants the credit and most of the time with a spree killer they go down in one of three ways either a hail of gunfire from the cops you know cop by or suicide by cops they turn themselves in which is not very common or they kill themselves which is pretty common um and this is because they're completely desensitized the value of, the, of life, including their own at that point. Right. Right. So what I kind of thought about Levi was telling you about, like, I think he's just one of these classic cases of, and I should say this, part of that under arousal, that that is a biological phenomenon, but I think that's going on with his dad too. So oh, for sure. you're inheriting these genes. The genes aren't just like, oh, genes equal violence. Genes can be moderated by a biological phenomenon. So the genes could have created the under arousal, which creates the criminal behavior. And that could be working in both the dad and the son. Right. So it's not that, yes, I'm, I'm throwing a lot of things out there like, oh, it's the genes, it's the environment, but these all play together. You have to inherit an under arousal, chronic under arousal. And kids who are chronically under aroused are a huge risk for becoming criminals. We have lots of studies about that. So talking to him was, as I said, a little weird. I mean, he looks very normal. He's, he looks me right in the eye. You know, and he's he's compelling. He's he's bright. Um, and he's a little detached from his emotions, as you would expect a psychopath to be. But he has absolutely no remorse for the murders. And he's really cold. And he looks at me in a way that I'm like, I'm glad there's glass between us. Um, but I can't help but wonder what he felt, if anything, when Robin Doan, who was that 10-year-old girl, the only survivor, faced him in court. And she told him that she forgave him. Like, wow. I wonder, like, I get chills when I hear that, but I wonder, I wanted to know, but I can't trust his words, but I wanted to know if he felt anything, um, you know, given the level of psychopath psychopathy or sociopathy that, you know, had started at such a young age, I can't imagine him having remorse. Um, did he say anything? He did. He said he felt bad for what he put her through. He's like, look, she had loving parents. She had what I didn't have. And I took that from her. But I don't know if I buy it. And I should say that he did say he's not. He's okay being behind bars because he's not sure he wouldn't kill again. I asked him, do you think you'd ever kill again if you got out? He's giving me all these excuses for the killing, but do you think you would kill again? He goes, I'm not sure I wouldn't. I, and so he's he's content with his fate. Yeah, yeah. That's nuts. Uh, I could see him going on killing, yeah. sure, based on what I've heard. Yep. I did not treat Levi King. I didn't, I, I've met Levi King. Yes, I interviewed him, but I did not like run a psychopathy checklist past him. Like I didn't diagnose the guy, but he has all of the telltale signs, right? Like lack of empathy, lack of remorse, violent, emotionally detached, you know, hurting animals. He's got all of it. And by the way, psychopaths are chronically under aroused. Like that goes hand in hand. Th those are two things that we, we yeah, see. Um and we're, we, there's other episodes we're going to get really deep into that because it's fascinating how you can literally become a, a decorated war hero, a decorated president of a country, or a serial killer with the same profile. It's just what makes you a good guy 
and makes you a bad guy because you're still a psychopath. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, <laughs> so he, Levi, when we're talking, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, I didn't, I didn't kill my dad because my little brother still lived there. And I felt bad for Robin because I took away her family. I call BS. And here's why. You killed your brother's cat while he was at school. You shot at a 10-year-old who couldn't, it was pitch black, could not have identified you, still didn't identify you. I just don't think he cares. He knows to say he cares, but he just doesn't care. And unlike an impulsive type killer, like we talked about the ones often prefrontal lobe damage, they can't control themselves. Levi can control himself. And he serves as revenge gold. Like people like this have genetic, biological, and sometimes environmental influences, but often the psychopathy enough can get you there. Um, and this is where environment becomes important because these you can have these def deficits, like I said, and be pro-social. But when you have such a horrible upbringing and your environment's so traumatic and toxic, it's you know it's it's going to be hard. And his brothers and sisters probably inherited different combinations of genes or had other protective factors I don't know about. So okay, so I spent a ton of time talking about all those risk factors. Well, what's the point then? What's the point of talking about how to prevent it if if he's a lost cause and it would seem like his fate is sealed and he's got every ingredient to become a killer? Could it have been prevented? Like is, is someone like Levi a lost cause? And this takes a little bit of explaining, but I think he. He didn't have to be. So when you hear about biology, you think it's immutable, but it's not. We actually have the power to change some of our biological phenomena, and it's, it's fascinating. Biofeedback is one of the ways that you can train your under-aroused brain. You can train it to become aroused, and it works with criminals. So biofeedback is always my go-to. And if Levi had had access to that, it could have been effective. But somebody living in such an impoverished situation is never going to have access to something like biofeedback. So what I'd like to talk about with Levi in particular is how systemically we could change the outcome with people who are living in these lower socioeconomic status places. They, they don't have access. There's food insecurity. There's not a lot of supervision. There's not great parenting. There are actually ways to change an entire population and reduce this exact outcome, reduce the chances significantly. Like I'm not telling you, oh, we saw a 4% reduction in crime. It's big. It's big. I got really excited about it the first time I read it, don't, I don't know, however many years ago. <clears throat> Tell me more. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> You're trapped in my seat. Tell me more. Learn. If you intervene early enough, it's actually never too late. You can do this later on, but the earlier the intervention is better, and you can literally change the course of somebody like Levi, and it's not what you think. Of course, tell them to stop using drugs and avoid trauma. Yes, parents, don't use drugs. Avoid trauma for your children. Yes, of course, that's, we all, I think, if you're at a place where you're listening to a podcast about parenting and true crime, you know not to right. abuse your children and do drugs and have them do drugs with you. Um, there are people who have lived like that generationally, where it's like, like, maybe as you so astutely pointed out, and I so stupidly did not ask this question when I had him in front of me, what was Levi's grandpa like? And I would, that area, I, I would not be surprised if it's just, I always think of Ozark. Pattern or like, yes. The, the movie Ozark. So it's like, it's hard to pull yourself out of multiple generations of violence and drug use, but but there is a way to do it. And it's this brilliant study by this guy named David Olds. And he actually won what's called the Stockholm Prize, which is the equivalent of like a Nobel Prize for us criminologists. And what he did is we've talked about it. I was actually living with you when I did my master's thesis, and it was how smoking while you're pregnant is a great predictor of future conduct disorder in 12-year-olds. It's, you know, they're on their way. 
to crime. Um, well, he took those types of risk factors. It was, uh, there's a bunch of them, like birth complications, we know, uh, poor nutrition during pregnancy, and maternal care before and after the kid is born. And that's one of the ones that's striking to me. It's how you bond with your mom. It, all sorts of things can predict future criminal behavior. So he knew this. Even as even in the 70s, we knew these risk factors put people on the fast track to becoming future criminals. He knew it. So, And he recognized how daunting motherhood is, period. But if you're poor, if you're doing drugs, if you're in an abusive relationship, it's that much harder. Like we complain about it's so hard to work and have kids, and oh my God, there's a tantrum. Imagine not knowing if you can feed them and or a roof over their head, or yeah, you're you're being abused at the same time, and you and can't trying. leave. Right, right. You know, so recognizing all of that, he had this theory that if you help vulnerable young mothers become healthier or stronger, they will raise stronger children, and the children who are strong enough will put themselves in a better direction. But there were some things that were expected benefits, like, you know, like, don't hit your kid in the head and like, you know, don't, don't, you know, you should feed your babies. That that wasn't obvious, but there was something that happened with the moms, too. They got better in this study, even though it wasn't meant for that. It was not meant to improve the moms. It was meant to reduce risk factor for the future, uh, for the future of the child. But this is what happened. And I'm not sure. I am sure this would have helped Levi's mom. I am sure it would have. I'm not sure it would have totally taken Levi off of that track, but it's a good chance it would have. So Olds, this researcher, he sampled hundreds of young, um, low social class pregnant women, and a lot of them were young. Some of them weren't, and he randomized them. So he he randomly put, and they did this blind, like so it wasn't like, oh, one group was better off already. It was random. And one group got this treatment he developed, and the other group got nothing, just the regular standard of care that they would have had. Right. And what they did is, for the group who was receiving the intervention, there were nine visits from a nurse practitioner during pregnancy, and then another 23 visits after the baby was born for two years. So it's like once a month, this professional comes into your home. And those two years are a critical part of a baby's development. So what did the nurses do? They came into the house and they gave constant advice and counseling to the mothers about reducing smoking and alcohol, improving their nutrition, and meeting the social, emotional, and physical needs of their infant. This sounds like, yeah, 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 but how is that really going to affect somebody whose life is that difficult? The results are shocking. They're shocking. The control group received the normal standard of care like we talked about. The other group received those nurses' visits and that advice. And then the children are followed for 15 more years. Wow. So now they're 17 years old, and we know what happened. Compared with the kids who didn't receive the treatment, the children whose mothers had the nurse visits showed 53% reduction in arrests and 63% reduction in convictions. Wow. Those are huge numbers. We don't even hope for that when we're running a study of intervention. Like, you're hoping to save you know, 20% yeah, of the kids. Small, small percentage or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Like if, if you save one, it's enough. Yes. Nope. Um, they also showed a 50, 56% reduction in alcohol use, 40% reduction in smoking. This one's a good it's one. Huge. Huge. Because, you know, they're already on a better track. Right. Truancy and destruction of property reduced by 91%. Wow. And get this, these effects I just described yeah. were strongest in the mothers who were unmarried and particularly impoverished. The kids who were most likely to become criminal because of their bad situation, 
benefited the most. We had the best results in that group. I have chills. It's like— I feel like that that would have been a huge answer for him. Right, right. If there was just somebody in there coaching his parents—I mean, his dad, whatever. But the mom, like, you actually have to eat while you're pregnant. You have to right. make sure you're full. And then when the baby comes, you you have to do this stuff. And, like, even the guilt of knowing that nurse is going to come again in a month. And then you're like, I better—I better—shit, Levi's looking skinny. I better do something. You know what I mean? Like, I think there's a lot of things that happened— that influenced it, but it worked and it continues to work. So, I mean, I'm so inspired by this guy. And I think there are other studies that I'm going to cover in other podcasts where some of these things are implemented even with older children and they have dramatic results too. Like, why are we not screaming this from rooftops? That's what I was just thinking. I was just thinking like, are they, I mean, are they promoting this? Is this, you know, in the States? Is it just in certain areas? Mm -hmm. This should be implemented, like, immediately. Especially in a place where you know you're getting a lot of criminals coming out of there. Right. I'm I'm looking at you, Texas and Florida. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe Missouri. Clearly Missouri, too. I mean, there, there are certain places where we know these problems exist. And this study was in 1977, and there's been a bunch of these studies to back it up. It's incredibly robust, and there are programs, and we're going to get to that. But I want to talk a little bit about David Old, the researcher, and how he was inspired. So he's working at this daycare, and he says, and I'm going to just read this, Olds recalls one blue-eyed four-year-old boy, blonde four-year-old boy, who was being cared for by his grandmother. The child, who Olds described as a fragile boy with a sweet disposition, communicated only with barks and grunts. In classroom meetings with the grandmother, Olds learned that the boy's speech was so severely delayed because his mother was a drug addict and alcoholic and had been using throughout her pregnancy. Bobby, another four-year-old with thick glasses and partially cross-eyed, Bobby, was always restless at nap time, Olds says. He would be rolling around half out of his cot most of the time. And on one occasion, Olds and a colleague tried to talk with Bobby about this problem. And the boy fired back a string of expletives that stunned his teachers. Eventually, Bobby calmed down, and it was then that Olds discovered why this young charge was so restless. At home, Bobby would wet himself when he took naps, and his mother would beat him for it. Oh, so terrible. So Bobby couldn't fall asleep because he was too afraid that the same thing would happen at his daycare. Olds began to develop a sense that his work at the center was futile. For many of the children's classroom, irreparable damage had already been done. And at this point, Olds went back to school and dedicated his life to getting more knowledge around this cause. So for some time, like Olds had been thinking and planning this visit, nurse visitation program. So he dives into this research. He finds out all the things that we know about, you know, these risk factors, birth complications, smoking and drinking, and poor maternal nutrition while pregnant and poor nutrition for the infant. And he convinces them that they need to take care of the social, emotional, and physical needs of, of the, the kids. He figures it out, and he knows the population he needs to do this with. And that's how it all starts. And the moms all improved. They left abusive relationships. They stopped doing drugs and alcohol. They went back to school. The moms in that group, we, we wanted the babies to be better, but the moms all improved. That was a surprise. Like, yeah. In his like a study. secondary benefit. Yeah. So future children are now better off. The, the next sibling, the next kid. So how does this all apply today? What are the solutions? You just talked about that. You were like, why are, what is this? Is it happening? Why is, why is it not happening? Right. So today the program has become the Nurse Family Partnership, and many other programs have been created just like it. The image is to help the mother, because in helping the mom, you save the kid. However, not all mothers who need these programs are getting it. They're not receiving it, largely because there's too much demand, and there's not enough supply. There's not enough money for them. Right. Um, 
this is a good example. Los Angeles, where we're recording this podcast right now, where you and I grew up, has one of the most robust home visiting networks in the state. Not surprising. But despite this, less than 4% of eligible families in the county receive it. They don't receive the home visiting services. Therefore, additional state funding to expand the programs is needed. It's money, our budget. Right. Right? Yeah. It's money. But we know. Guess what else is really expensive? Prisons. The jails. and Yeah. yeah. Crime's pretty damn expensive, too. And if we can prevent. Right. If they have this knowledge, they know this study, why aren't we putting more funding into that Mm -hmm. to prevent the long-term outcome down the road? I want to stop for a second and talk a little bit about exactly how expensive the prison system is. And this has just prompted me. When I went to meet Levi, usually when I interview a killer, whether I like it or not, they're sitting about three feet, four feet away from me. And we do that to get a single camera shot. You're not allowed to bring a lot of cameras into prison. So I have to be basically on their laps, which is awfully uncomfortable. Um, I get there and Levi's behind glass. I'm used to that in death row, but that's the only time that my prisoners are ever behind glass. And I'm like, Levi, what'd you do? And he's like, I've been in the shoe. The man had been in solitary confinement, 23 hours locked up a day with nothing because he tells me I was playing basketball in the yard and the guard told me to drop off my medical at the, I guess, the nurse's office or wherever you go. And I didn't do it. And I'm like, you did not get sent to solitary confinement for three months because you forgot to turn in a piece of paper. He's like, yes, I did. So I'm like, whatever, he's lying. Walking out with the guard, he's like, I'm the one who put him in the shoe. I go, why'd you put him in the shoe? He said, because I told him to go turn in his medical after basketball, and he didn't. He was put in solitary confinement for three and a half weeks for not turning in a piece of paper into the medical office. That's insane. Let's sit with that for a minute. Let's sit. Levi King's never getting out of prison. But what if you have a criminal who is? You put an animal in a cage like that, a normal, right. even a normal person, they're going to come out worse. They're not going to come out better. Right. It's so infuriating to me that the way the prison systems work, and that's a different podcast for a different day, but this it applies here for this example. There's no way Levi King is less violent after three and a half weeks locked up like an animal. It's only worse. Right, right. It's only gonna, he's only going to be festering and, mm-hmm. and know, in his what? own skin. Maybe he's going to hurt an, another inmate, you know? Maybe he gets out of the shoe and he's all pent up. I don't know. And not to get on a soapbox here, but there are other countries, like there's some countries in Europe where the maximum sentence you can receive is 20 years. You um, get in there immediately. It's psychologists, psychiatrists, doctors, teachers. They're all working on you. It's less punitive. As Americans, we love a punitive system. It's just in our blood. But the recidivism is so much lower with those programs. They come out. They're not. They don't commit the crimes again. And out of our prisons, it's like we just teach them how to be better. We teach them how to be better criminals, and then we you know, poke the bear. We make them worse. So was it not necessary to have the glass between the two of you? They forced it because once you're, when you're in solitary confinement, you don't get to be with somebody else. So they forced the glass. Did I need a glass to be protected from Levi King? No. I have sat with criminals who have, I needed the glass. Yeah. I needed the, and I didn't have the glass. And that's a different podcast, you know, and did have some urges to hurt me and said it. And we had a back up and interviews. That does happen, not with Levi King. So there are other things that can help somebody like Levi King that are incredibly effective in preventing crime. There's certain medications they can take. There is cognitive behavioral therapy actually has some really good rewards. We will cover all of these other ways to not raise a serial killer in future podcasts, but I want to focus on these programs for somebody like Levi King because the government unknowingly could have 
prevented this. And he is the perfect candidate. His family is the perfect candidate for one of these programs. And I read to you the reduction in crime. 91% truancy and property destruction. That's how he got his start. Oh, right. Dropping out of school and setting stuff on fire and robbing things. Like 91% reduction in that group. I have every reason to believe it could have changed the trajectory for Levi King. Okay. Is anything else about this that we didn't cover? Like you asked really good questions. What was the dad's dad like? What what birth number is he? These are all questions that even though I've spent my entire life studying half of that time you were living with me, I don't think of. I don't think of everything. So I, I love having moms on here to A, give me the mom perspective that I, you know, I might have alone, but I need to have with someone else. But also, what else strikes you about this? Well, uh, initially and a little bit ago, um, I was asking where the mom was in Mm -hmm. all of this. And that's where my immediate thought goes, Mm -hmm. right? You know, we hear, we heard a lot about what the dad did and his influences and, you know, how that trickled down to Levi. Right. I I always go back to like, where was the mom in this? And so now, full circle, we're going back to where, um, you know, through Dr. Olds' mm-hmm. um, study and through, you know, government help. And had she gone through something like that and bonded with her, you know, yeah. with her kids and, and you know, taking care of her children, you know, nurture them, mm-hmm. you know, feed them and all those things, this, this totally could have been a different outcome. You make a great point because it seems like she was kind of absent. But if she had been trained and knows someone's coming every month, maybe she would have been a buffer. Between right, not only you know created a uh, trajectory that's different for Levi, but also pr- protected him and recognized how important it is to protect the children from an, an awful father. And so there is a takeaway from this study. People have distilled it down to why each element worked in these population and so effectively. But one element that we all can take, if you can be have the greatest social situation, you can be wealthy, you can have all your information. Obviously, if you're listening to parenting podcasts, you care. There is one thing out there that everybody should do and everybody should know. And this alone has reduced crime in certain populations to levels like this. And it's fish. Omega-3s. Omegas. That's what they tell you. Your doctor tells you when you're pregnant. Right. And part of the supplements that they, that, you know, your prenatal care is to take fish oils and um, you know, your prenatal vitamins yeah. and folic acid, eat, right? Eat these things and avoid these things. Right. And, and they call them brain foods, like eat your brain foods. Right. But they tell you that because it, it supports brain development in the fetus. What they don't tell you is you want that brain development because it also prevents criminal behavior. And they don't tell you that because they don't know. They know that these things, but that's the mechanism how it stops crime is it changes the way your brain's forming. But here's the thing. It works even after they're born, and it works post-birth while they're still children. There are studies I will cover in future podcasts where they've been um, given this, and their course of their lives have changed. Wow. Yeah. So <clears throat> you and I talked, you, you, as you said, why is this not happening everywhere? And it's, it's tax dollars and legislation that are needed to support and protect these programs. I mean, only 4% of the people who need it in Los Angeles are getting it. It's a huge population here. I mean, it's huge. Should, I mean, this could benefit so many mm-hmm. different populations. We have homeless populations. We have, you know, you know. But thank God we have that high-speed train going to nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I digress. Children are literally the future of any society. And, right. And government needs to, to consider that. I mean, right. you'll, you'll be saving money with the prisons if you prevent some of the criminals. That brings us into privatized 
uh, prisons, which we'll cover some other time. But if you do want, if, the, if this means something to you, and like it definitely prompted this in me and take action, you can find links for programs. Like there's one called Shields and the one that we described, which is the Nurse Family Partnership. And we describe those in our shows and those programs happily take donations. So if you're sitting on some cash and you want to help kids. Save the future. Save the future. And the show notes for this episode will have links to both of those. So there are ways that if somebody's feeling compelled to donate, they can. Okay, so Allie, thank you for coming to do this. Absolutely. This was so intriguing. Yeah, I feel like I've been making you do this like our whole lives, though. Talk to me about killers. Well, I've, it's interesting because it's not something that I pursued or something that I would ever stop to think about. But living with you, it made me stop to think about, mm-hmm. you know, prefrontal. Prefrontal love. We talked yep. a lot about it. Yep. And just to let you off the hook, I, I've been with your boys since the day they were born and they're all good. They're fine. You don't, no serial killer in your home. They're incredible kids. So. Oh, thank God. Sometimes, yes. sometimes I, you know, you worry as a parent. But. No, I love them. And they're so good. They're good kids. Um, but thank you. And um, thank you for having me. It was interesting. It I is. learned a lot. It's good stuff. All right. I'm Michelle Ward. And this has been How Not to Raise a Serial Killer. See you next week. I won't really see them, though. Hear me next week. <laughs> How Not to Raise a Serial Killer is a Cloud 10 Media production, executive produced by me, Dr. Michelle Ward, and Sim Sarna. Our editor is Emily Crane. Our music was created by Josh Cook, with artwork provided by Brian Stefanik. Follow us on Instagram at How Not to Raise a Serial Killer and on TikTok and Twitter at Hentrask. That's at H N. T-R-A-S-K. And if you'd like to share a story or ask a question, you can email us at hownottoraiseaserialkiller at gmail.com or call and leave a voicemail at 818-392-4403. If you like our show, do me a favor and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. After all, if more people know about the show, maybe fewer kids will turn into serial killers. Who knows? Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.